Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, with a message titled The Full Gospel in Ephesus. So turn in your Bibles to Acts 19, verses 1 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. None of us has comprehensive knowledge about everything. You know, and furthermore, especially in the world we live in today, where it's likely we get little pieces of information from here and from there, and given that so many things that we hear, I mean, we don't have the time to research, you know, whether or not that knowledge is reliable. You know, it happens to be true of everyone that that we have little bits of information swimming around in our brains, things we assume to be true, but things that are definitely false. It's especially true in this so-called information age. I mean, just think of our sources of information, of course, from parents, from siblings, friends, from our schooling, from media, from the movies we watch, from the books we read, from the internet, from social media sources. There's never been a time when there's so much information available, but there's also never been a time when so much inaccurate information has been circulating at the same time. You know, I could say more, especially on the algorithms in our personal electronic devices that tend to feed us the stuff that we already believe. I mean, what a day to live in. I mean, so much information and amazingly so much misinformation. And consequently, you know, people are divided about what they believe with opposing sides, thinking the other side is hopelessly misinformed and gullible. But it's not as if this is the first time in history that people have believed in lies and half-truths as well as suffered from misinformation. You know, from the very beginning, when the serpent approached the woman and said to her, has God really said? The human race has refused to believe what's true and then has also willingly embraced and made doctrines around things that are demonstrably false. I mean, you can then imagine if there is one thing about which Satan, the great, you know, the great enemy of the human race, if there's one thing he's engaged in twisting, it is the saving news of Jesus. I mean, how can men and women be reconciled to God? How can their sins be forgiven? How can they know the hope of eternity? Satan is very interested in making sure that clarity on that matter is never achieved. And so there exists among many people little snippets of knowledge. And furthermore, since we're all programmed to hear what we want to hear, or even to hear that which we're capable of hearing, or hearing that which conforms to what we've been taught before, what we've believed before, it's quite possible, indeed it's often the case, when someone hears the saving news of Jesus that they misunderstand it entirely, or that they take a part of it and simply incorporate it into all their other misunderstandings. You know, what's needed are two things. Without the Holy Spirit, all things that come from God will seem like foolishness to us. We need the Holy Spirit to shine the light of God's truth into our darkened hearts. And second, we need preachers and teachers and everyday Christians to patiently and with great care explain the whole counsel of God, listening to our questions, answering our questions, and explaining the way of God more accurately. We have in our study of Acts chapter 16 to 20, we've come to chapter 19 in which a false understanding of God's saving work is at stake. It has a great deal to teach us today. So let's begin our reading, Acts 19, 1 to 4. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. 
We've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Now, Paul had briefly visited Ephesus before. He was, you know, then completing a second missionary journey. I've already said that the city was an impressive city, perhaps the third largest city in the Roman Empire at that time. Paul was on his way back home to Antioch in Syria back then, so he didn't have a lot of time to stay there. But while he was there, for however long it was, he was lecturing in the Jewish synagogue. He was explaining that Jesus really was the long-expected Messiah. He would also have explained the way to forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. In short, he explained the gospel, the full gospel, the saving news of Jesus. And then he left, hoping that he'd have opportunity to return. And in the meantime, he had left Aquila and Priscilla there. And in the course of time, that couple came upon an outstanding Christian who had taught the way of God accurately, but who had gaps in his knowledge. And Priscilla and Aquila filled in the gaps. And with that, Apollos was on his way to Corinth, strengthening the church there. And in the meantime, by God's grace, Paul now arrives in Ephesus. And it turns out that Apollos, who had gaps in his knowledge about the message of Jesus, that wasn't the biggest problem in that city. Paul, when he arrived in Ephesus, now the second time he's there, he would have undoubtedly taken the time to meet with Priscilla and Aquila, who would have brought him up to speed with everything that had happened in Ephesus while he was gone. And they would have told him about Apollos, and no doubt, Paul would have been filled with joy. And they would have also told him that the synagogue in Ephesus was open to have him come back and allow him to teach more about Jesus, and that was good news. But in time, he found a group of 12 men. Now, most likely, they were connected to the synagogue, and Luke calls them disciples, though he doesn't specify to whom they were disciples, just that they were disciples. Now, in most places, when Luke uses the word disciples, he does mean disciples of Jesus. But as Paul engages with him, he notices something's wrong. And even though he would have noticed it, He gives them the benefit of the doubt. Listen to what he asks them. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? See, that's an amazing question. I say it really is a startling question because the Holy Spirit is indispensable to our salvation. We already saw that earlier in our study of Acts. And Lydia had come to Christ. You know, Luke says that the Lord opened her heart. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit made her receptive to the gospel. Or think of Titus chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul will say, And he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That is to say, the Holy Spirit is the agent of our regeneration, or to use other biblical words that describe it, of our new birth. When we're born again, we're born of the Spirit. In John 3, 5 and 6, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So to come to Christ as our Savior and Lord, to repent of our sins, to receive the grace of forgiveness and reconciliation with the Father, this, along with the gift of the new heart that now loves God beyond all other things, All of that, that's conversion, and all of that is born of the Holy Spirit. 
And so when Paul asked the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, he's offering no judgment on the kind of believing these 12 men had. You know, faith or believing without the Holy Spirit, well, that's not saving faith. You know, it might be an intellectual agreement with the Christian faith. It might be that a person has a great admiration for Jesus. It might even mean that they belong to a local church or that they go along with the things of the faith. It might mean a lot of things. But without the Holy Spirit, no man or woman is in Christ. Romans 8, 9 tells us that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, that is, the Holy Spirit who reveals Christ to us, if any person does not have the Holy Spirit, they do not belong to Christ. And so the question that Paul asks is the most basic question regarding the nature of conversion. He says, I hear you believe, but did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And of course, the answer that they give, it's really amazing. The answer, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit, or we've never heard of such a being. And that leads Paul to ask the next question. Since you say you believe, I know you've been baptized, so would you tell me about your baptism? I mean, notice Paul always assumes anyone that believes is baptized. So into, into what were you baptized? You know, to many modern-day Christians, you know, who have separated out baptism from Christian faith, you know, that, that question, well, that's almost incomprehensible to us. I mean, why in the world is Paul speaking about baptism here? And the answer is he wants to know, since baptism is the symbol of initiation into the faith, how were you initiated into the faith? Into what or whom were you baptized? And with that comes the stunning answer. Well, we were baptized into John's baptism. I say it's a stunning answer because John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah. And he made it very clear. He said, I baptize you with water. The one coming after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John kept pointing to Jesus. And here's what I meant earlier when I said, it's so often the case that people with partial information just piece the truth together in their own minds and end up in error. That's what happened here. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, I wanted to thank you for your prayers, your gifts, and support towards the calendar year-end financial goal. We're so appreciative to report that the campaign was a ministry success. I can't express enough our gratitude for your generosity. Now, Back to the Bible Canada is well-equipped to begin a new year of sharing the gospel to more people in more ways than ever before. Your gifts allow this Bible teaching program to reach the ears of so many, some growing in faith, others perhaps being introduced for the first time. One listener recently wrote, God knows and cares about the intimate details of our lives, and he is using you to communicate his love and mercy and grace. Please continue to support the ministry in 2023, or even perhaps become a new monthly partner. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. You know, John the Baptist said a great deal about the one coming after him. He also said that one coming after him would baptize in the Holy Spirit. Now, these 12 disciples, for reasons that are unclear to me, must have heard the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And to the most part, 
All they heard was repent. I mean, they would have heard John telling the tax collectors that from now on, they were to collect no more than they were authorized to do. That is, the tax collectors were to repent from becoming rich by bending the law and living off the miseries of others. It's time for that to end. And they would have heard John telling the soldiers not to extort money from anyone by threats and by false accusation. And from then on, they were to be content with their wages. Yeah, I think these 12 heard such messages of repentance. And it would seem to me they would have taken them to heart. And in that fashion, well, they would have believed. So let's apply that. There are today people who call themselves Christians because they agree with the moral principles taught in the Christian faith. They find the Ten Commandments convicting. They hear Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and they're convicted again. Love your enemies, says Jesus. Don't repay anyone evil for evil, says Jesus. Give to the needy and don't practice your righteousness before men just to be seen by them. Don't lust over another person in your heart. Don't get divorced. Don't pray like the hypocrites. Rather, do to others what you would have them to do unto you. They hear all this stuff and they say, that's right, that's true. And they commit themselves to remove these offenses from their lives and to live as righteously as they're able. But while they hear these things, and as they seek to do these things, they're even further from God. They've never heard the saving news, the news of Jesus from the cross, who on the cross bore the penalty for their sins and who sent the Holy Spirit to give them new birth, that they would no longer be slaves to sin and to self, but rather be given a new heart. All of that they never heard. And I think that these 12 men in Ephesus were just like that. They had a kind of believing, but it was not the kind of believing that's brought on by someone who's born of the Spirit and baptized into the salvation that Jesus brings. And so Paul fills in the gaps, and clearly, as was the case of Lydia and Philippi, the Holy Spirit opened the hearts of these 12 disciples so that they're paying attention to what Paul is saying. Acts 19, 5-7. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, The Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. There are two items here. The first is repeated phrase in Acts, that they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Often, especially among those who deny the Trinity today, there are those who enjoy pointing out that in the end of Matthew, the people were told to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then they say, we get into Acts, and then they're baptized in the name of Jesus. And so these anti-Trinitarians like to say, you know, Jesus must be the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So they deny the personhood of the Father and the Spirit. Now, clearly that's not the case here. In Acts, when people are baptized in the name of Jesus, we're not to understand that those were the words that were used in their baptism. We have to assume that since Jesus commanded his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That was the wording of Christian baptism at all times. But when people are baptized, they're baptized by the authority that Jesus gave them to baptize, and that's what Acts is telling us. Well, that matter set aside, let's deal with the second issue, and that is that at this time, these 12 men began to speak in tongues. We've already made the case that up to now, these men were not regenerate. That is, they'd not been born again or born of the Spirit. And since that's the case, Acts 19 can't be used to support a doctrine that states you can be saved but not have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, clearly, 
as we've seen, that's not what happened here. These men were not Christians in the first place. They had not received the Holy Spirit. Well, if that's true, what do we make of this phenomenon of them speaking in tongues? Well, the answer must be that at certain times, people speak in tongues as evidence that the Holy Spirit has come. Well, not always. Lydia never spoke in tongues when she believed. The Philippian jailer didn't speak in tongues when he believed. Neither do we hear of, you know, people in Corinth speaking in tongues, although we know later in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30, Paul will ask, do all speak in tongues? And the question in the Greek language is framed in such a way as to demand the answer, no, no, they don't. See, some spoke in tongues, others didn't. You see, tongues is not the evidence of the presence of the Spirit, although it can be an evidence of the presence of the Spirit. You know, it was so on the day of Pentecost when the church was formed. It was, again, you know, in the Gentile house of Cornelius when he and his household believed. You'll find that described in Acts chapter 10. You know, in each case, the reason for tongues is different. You know, in Acts 2, it's simply evidence that the Holy Spirit is giving a message to the whole world. In Acts 10, it was evidence that the Gentile converts were not inferior to the Jewish converts. And here it's evidence that all who got the message of salvation wrong in the first place, but who later understood it correctly, are also equally a part of the family of God. Now, having said that, it always seemed to me that there are two extremes on this matter. One extreme is the extreme that demands that everyone must speak in tongues. As we've seen, that's contrary to the plain teaching of Scripture. But the other extreme is to prevent anyone from speaking in tongues today. That also is contrary to Scripture. 1 Corinthians 14.39 says, Do not forbid the speaking in tongues. So I think the matter is quite simple. We should settle it. Let's continue to read. The text moves on beyond the experience of these 12 disciples to the wider ministry of Paul in Ephesus. And here it relates to his ministry in the synagogue. So here I'm reading Acts 19, 8 to 10. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So we're talking about the full gospel, the complete good news, the saving news of Jesus. And whether it's the 12 disciples of John the Baptist who now hear the full news and believe, or whether it's the people in the synagogue of Ephesus, Luke wants to report to us people were hearing the complete news of Jesus. And Paul's speaking boldly. He's not apologizing for what he's saying. And the process goes on not for three weeks as it occurred in Thessalonica, but it goes on in the synagogue for three months. You can only imagine that in the three months afforded, Paul would have been able to go through the entire Old Testament, and he would show how Jesus is the hope of the entire Bible. And when his afforded three months are over, then there are those who begin to slander him. Look at these followers of Jesus, they would say. And so they would begin to slander them. But Paul's not done. His time at the synagogue might have come to an end, so that he has to now move to another place, and that other place is called the Hall of Tyrannus. You know, there's a Western text that has placed a line into, you know, this text. It's not a part of the original, but it's an intended as an explanatory note. It says that from the fifth hour to the tenth hour, Paul lectured daily. So that would be about 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. 
That is, when the heat was oppressive, when people were looking for shade, they would hang out and hear Paul reasoning about Jesus and the kingdom of God. Crowd kept growing, and like in Corinth, no legal challenges forced Paul to quit, at least not in the beginning. And given that this was the case, Paul carries on in that format for two years. We have to imagine the daily stream of people, indeed the daily conversions, baptisms, would have been happening frequently, almost daily. A church was being formed. Elders, deacons would have been trained in the hall of Tyrannus. Aquila and Priscilla would have been busier than they'd ever been in their lives trying to keep up with Paul. And because of the significance of Ephesus to Asia, that is, modern-day Turkey, People throughout the region were talking. Ephesus had always been the center, and the gospel was being heard from that place. Some heard and incorporated a part of what they heard into their already existing modes of thinking. They remained lost, and they were ignorant of the ways of God. But others, like the 12 disciples of John, like the people in the synagogue who believed, and like those who journeyed to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, they got it. And the word of God, its truth, and the salvation that Jesus offered was told in all its fullness. They got the full gospel. And that's an example to us today. We need to teach the full truths of Jesus, for only in that way will the church grow and people be deepened in their salvation. You know, John, I know this happens because I've had some surprising conversations myself, but how do we address so many in our church families claiming Christ but really having little understanding of the gospel? I think, Ben, one of the things that we need to be clear on is that when people listen to the various spiritual voices that are there in our culture, you know, there are people um, who are semi-Christians who have a huge public stage either on television or also within social media, people are hearing all these disparate voices. And for the gullible and the ones that are uninformed, they simply incorporate everything they hear. And so they're filled with confusion. Ben, I think it's true to say that the evangelical church today is filled with unsaved people. And we simply call them saved. And what we need to do is to get back to understanding, preaching the gospel, uh, making corrections, sharing what it is and what it is to hope in Christ, and calling people to repent and believe. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3333. 
3315. That's 1 866 336 3315. Or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult.